Hello, Plantation. Welcome to the City of Plantation's podcast. I'm Dr. J, formerly with Plantation Information Radio. Thank you for tuning in. We hope the information provided within the episodes of this podcast help keep you, your family, and your friends safe during this pandemic. So continuing with our Voices of First Responders episode, I want to welcome two Plantation volunteer firefighters, Kevin Dove and Chris Muller. Both Kevin and Chris are military personnel as well. Kevin is currently active with the U.S. Coast Guard, and Chris is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army. Uh, So, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Chief. Uh, You know, I want to start off with uh, most people in this area don't really understand the concept of being a volunteer firefighter. Uh, You know, every community has firefighters, but they think of them as, you know, they're they're professionals, they're career level. When you get out of South Florida and you go into more rural areas, volunteers become more common. What is it like or what is it about being a volunteer firefighter, particularly in plantation, that's so special? I would say uh, being a volunteer is a it's a way of life. And that sounds kind of trite to say, but it it actually is, because unlike a full time professional firefighter that's going to have a set schedule to work, a volunteer, uh, you're working when you can, and it could be any hours of the day. So it actually becomes part of your life. You come home from work, you have your pager on. Uh, If a call comes in, you may be in the middle of dinner and put that aside to go run a call. Uh, if you wind up having to do travel for work, you may not be able to do calls for several days. So it actually becomes an integral part of your life, not just for you as a firefighter, but your, for your family as well. Um, so when we join the fire department, we're joining not necessarily just as an individual, but as a family unit, because they have to be supportive and behind us uh, during our time with the department. It really is a lifestyle, and that, that lifestyle is a your family is involved, the people that you know are involved, and it, it becomes – we are essentially one big family here. And with, when it comes down to it, I can call Chris and be like, Hey Chris, I need help with this. And he's going to come right over. He'll call me up, say, Hey, I need help with this. We'll figure it out, whatever the problem is. And it's more of a family. It's a lifestyle more than just uh, running the fire calls. So a a career firefighter and, and not to degrade the job of a career firefighter because it's, you know, it's incredible, but it's a job. It's a career. They get a paycheck. Uh, here in Plantation, it's your life. It, like you guys said, it's part of the family family affair. It's a family event. It's a community-wide event, right? Absolutely. And I think um, in for a career firefighter, they may or may not live in the city in which they work. Uh, for us, it's a requirement. For obvious reasons, we have to be close to the fire station. So we're all Plantation residents, aside from just being firefighters. So we're we're serving our neighbors. Uh, we're serving our other family and friends in the plantation community. I've been a volunteer firefighter since 2004, and this will be my fourth department. Because of the military, we have to move around every couple of years. So I usually work my way up, starting from a new guy uh, right at the beginning, working my way up through the through the ranks, and then i got to move again. And this is a, a different atmosphere because most of the other departments are more rural. Like you said, uh, 70% of the fire departments in the United States are volunteer and that is because, you know, there's not a lot of money in those areas. With the uh, this area is, is more affluent, but it, it keeps that heritage of having the volunteer fire department and being more urban. It's, it's definitely a unique type situation where most urban environments immediately go to a full-time staff. 
but this one has been able to hang on. And I think because of the family coordination and everybody being involved the way we are, that's the really the way that we've been able to keep a volunteer, a very successful volunteer fire department. So I'm going to throw this one out to both of you. And I, you may have touched on it already, but, and you said you, you've been a volunteer before in other departments. Um, and Chris, I, I don't know if you have also. So I, this is my fourth department. I actually started as a volunteer before I entered the military back in the eighties. So um, I've had experiences in Pennsylvania, Connecticut, California, and Florida. And uh, since I'm now retired, this is my fourth and final department I'll be a member of. And I would say that I actually chose the city of Plantation when I was retiring from the Army last year uh, as the place I wanted to permanently relocate to because of the fact that we have the largest volunteer department in the state of Florida. Uh, I purposely bought a house here with the hopes of becoming a member. Uh, and, you know, I can uh, uh, commiserate with Kevin because I understand what it's like to uh, to move around every couple of years and you join a department and you gain a reputation and then because of military orders, you you have to move to a new duty station and you wind up leaving your friends and you may or may not be able to come back later on down, down your career. Uh, for me, since I was retiring, I'm able to settle down here, become a member and stay uh, with the department long-term. So for both of you then, what is it about being a volunteer firefighter that's so special? I mean, you've obviously both made decisions to make commitments to being in places where there's volunteer fire departments. Why? What is it that's so attractive about it? I think the the main attraction when you first start out is, you know, getting on the truck, going to a call, there's a house fire fully involved, and it's the adrenaline rush. That's when you, when you first start out, that's pretty much what it is. But after a while, it, it starts to change. It starts, the, the feeling starts to change for you. And being able to, to we always say, yeah, I want to help people. And I always want, I, I've always wanted to be a firefighter. My parents were firefighters. So that was like a natural segue for me. And getting into it, getting started in it, that was kind of that, that rush. Hey, I'm filling my family's shoes. I'm kind of, you know, moving up in the family business, if you, if you could say. But I think once you move up, it's kind of like, okay, now I, I see myself being able to make improvements in the system, the, the training, the, the way the truck gets on the road. And there's other levels and other layers of it that really you can start to peel back once you move up and get more experience. And it's not just the thrill of getting down the, the highway real quick to put out a fire. That, that is still you know part of the gig, but there's more to it now. There's more meaning. There's more satisfaction to it when you, when you can you know, see the, the firefighter that you brought all the way through training and now they're backing you up on a line or they're on the line and you're backing them up. You're like, man, this guy's doing really good. So there's, there's other levels of it that it's as a growth, as a maturity level to it, that it, it, it's special. And how far of a stretch is it? I mean, thinking about it, right, the difference between the military and that family unit that everybody getting together to get the job done, the work hard, play hard. I mean, those are all very similar attitudes to the fire service. So it is somewhat of a natural transition for the culture, Maybe not necessarily the technical aspect, right? But the culture is very, very similar. Sure, absolutely. The The fire service is a paramilitary organization. There's a rank structure, uh, teamwork, cohesion, you know, the sense that, you know, you're in it for the, the good of the unit, not the individual. So there are a lot of direct aspects that, that translate over from the military to the fire service. For me, uh, the thing that's most attractive is the sense of service, um, which obviously the military, you have a sense of service, but it's, it's service to the nation. Whereas being a volunteer, it's a service to the local community. Right. And obviously, you know, in 29 years in the Army, I didn't know everybody I served in the United States. 
But here in plantation, I'm actually serving people I know. The longer I spend here, the, the chances are I'll actually go on calls where I'm actually helping people that I actually personally know. Right. And that's a great aspect to be able to, uh, to, to have that satisfaction of helping a neighbor. And, you know, the other part about the military that I like was the fact that there was a bigger picture. However, I would work on projects in the military that might take years to come to fruition, and I may start something and never actually see it finish. Here as a volunteer, you go on the call and you, you solve the problem right then and there. So it, there's instant satisfaction and, and an instant sense that you've actually been able to make a difference. Right. You want to jump oh, in he there? Wants up for yeah. me? Yeah, what well, I mean, you what don't have said. to, but... Yeah, right. Yeah, he, he comes back to the, the, the service aspect of it, but for me, I would say it's it's the esprit de corps. It's the, the gathering of... Uh, of all the same like-minded people yeah, and, and the friends that you make and then the connections that you make, I've made more connections that help my, my professional side and my volunteer side. They're so closely related with the coast guard and, and the fire service that there's right. people that I've met um, through the fire service that have helped the coast guard out and vice versa. There's people right. that they're so closely related that the, the interactions that I've met people from Palm Beach and Broward County that have helped people in Miami-Dade County and vice versa. And so it's just one big network of people that, that the, the interactions are limitless. So it really right. just depends on how, how busy you want to get. Yeah, absolutely. So taking all these things into consideration, how has this COVID epidemic changed your perception of uh, this function, this job? I think the current situation in the pandemic has, has heightened our awareness to obvious, obviously health concerns. Uh, we have increased precautions we're taking. Um, and I would say, I, I think long-term, this pandemic is going to do to the fire service and the emergency services community and the local community, much in the same way that, that 9-11 had changed the security aspects in the United States. Right. I don't think we'll ever return back to the way things were before the pandemic. I think certain procedures that we've enacted in the fire department uh, will continue uh, as, as far as patient treatment and, and, and distancing and, and, and yeah. not taking unnecessary risks. So in some respects, I think we're going to come out of this um, better than we were before. Right. And we won't return to the you know pre-pandemic days, much like life has changed for us after September 11th. Right. It was very painful at first, you know, going to the airport and, and, and increased wait times. But once, you know, we established a whole new agency in the federal government, TSA. Um, and it took a while to kind of get things to run routinely. But now that they do, I don't think we'd ever think of ever going back to the days before where you could walk up to a gate and greet a family member coming off a plane. Those, right. those days are gone. So I, I think there's a lot we've learned from this. We've learned the hard way and it's been very costly uh, in terms of lives, but um, I think we're going to come out better in yeah. the long run. The after action reports are going to be uh, very interesting to see where departments had in shortcomings with supplies, yeah. with staffing. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody was expecting, hey, the, the hospitals are going to get inundated. But now, I mean, we've got volunteers here that are being laid off that, yeah. that ha don't have work. There's hospitals literally out there who that are empty. Right. And, and that was a conversation uh, with earlier with the medical directors on a webinar uh, for Broward, where the doctors are saying, I I've got hospitals that have been empty for three days straight. No one's coming to the hospitals. They're afraid to be in the hospital. So I think you guys are right. I mean, I think, right, supply chain, logistics, those are all big things that we're going to look at as a department and that I know most every other department in the country are going to look at. And I'm sure the federal government's taking a look at the national stockpile and all those things. 
So, yeah, I think those are very good points. And, but, and but when it comes down to the factors also regarding our members, just the, the volunteers here, they've all got some other job that puts food on the table. And if, you know, we've got several people yeah. that are saying, hey, I, I don't have any work right now. You know, right. they're, they're making a lot of fire calls, but that's because they're, you know, yeah. they're not going to a day job. Yeah. But I'm sure they would like to go to their day job to put, you know, food on the table. But that's going to come down to issues with our staffing and saying, hey, if there is some kind of economic detriment such as this where right. you know, everything happens or if something in the future, something else were to happen, what kind of instances are we still going to maintain our workforce um, safely and health, you know, health wise but with their being able to feed their families right, and right. then keep them as a, a volunteer here. Which I think we forget, right? I mean, we see our guys show up. We see them show up for calls. We see them show up for training. Um, we're doing a lot of distance meetings and virtual training and stuff like that. But I think what we don't see, unless we hear about it firsthand, is how many of our members are out of work in their primary jobs, right? I mean, military you're not getting laid off going kind, anywhere. Kind of recession proof. <laughs> you know? Um, so, but that's a very good point, right? We got to look at that. So I guess that, that almost leads us kind of to our next question, which is we, we know that firefighting is a dangerous job. We prepare for it. We train for it. We make sure we have the right equipment to protect ourselves. But this is different. And I keep, we, we hear it all the time. This is different. This is unprecedented. What, precautions do we find ourselves taking and what are we doing differently now to protect ourselves than we've done before? Well, we've taken social distancing in the department to, um, I won't say to the extreme cause that has a negative connotation, but we've, we have a heightened sense of social distancing here. We obviously have uh, increased use of PPE when we, we otherwise wouldn't not have normally used that. So I, I think we've done the same things that we've seen on the civilian side of uh, the community but obviously uh, to a much greater degree because we're going to places that have folks that are most likely uh, or have a higher chances of, of having COVID. I think, too, when you see the development of technology in the fire service, they say, okay, what, what is the, the main threat at the moment? You know, we had three-quarter boots. We had long jackets. We had SCBA. You know, you watch Backdraft. They're not buckled up. You know, they got, you know, they're... No mask. They're heroes. You know, sucking they're, they're in smoke. Yeah, wait, wait, wait. Know. We, you guys don't know from that. I know from that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I know from hip boots and long coats. I and, saw it on TV once. I saw it on TV. Yeah, right. Yeah, on the History Channel. Yeah, those black. I saw and white some people. emergency, uh, some old uh, reruns <laughs> of Emergency. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's some pictures on the wall in the in the hallway upstairs that uh, you might have been on. But those, <laughs> you know, those tech, those <laughs> those features. And I wrote you know, tailboard. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. I think the technology was developed in response to, hey, we can't ride tailboard anymore. Why? People are falling off. Okay, got it. We right. need better SCBAs. Mm -hmm. right. Why Correct. do we need better yeah. SCBAs? But that, that development procedure, that process has happened over a long period of time. This all of a sudden hit us and said, hey, we need to protect our people. And we want to take these precautions to protect our people. But it's like, what is the best way at the moment? Well, what do we have that can protect everybody from an airborne thing? And we think, okay, smoke. SCBA. We'll just put on everybody on SCBA. But that's obviously that's not a realistic expectation for everybody to be walking around on SCBA all the time. Right. So you have to scale it up. We try to scale it up as much as we can. You know, ideally you'd have a full hazmat suit anytime you went anywhere, but that's just not practical. So what is the level 
And that's what we have to find out. What is the, the, right. the correct level of PPE for you know, it's what a, you're trying to get into? It's interesting because right now, like the mask, the N95 is like the mask of choice. In, in, in a time of scarcity of masks, somebody that has an N95, that's that's kind of, you know, highly that's sought like, after. Right, right? that's, that's, the, that's so the bar. It, yeah. It's kind of like, you know, after the war broke out, the second war in Iraq, when... I thought you, you were going to mention you, World War II, sorry. No, 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 I'm not that old. <laughs> and you go back and you look at when they, the... Uh, the IEDs were being used against the United States. At that time, all we had were Humvees. They weren't armored. So what right. we wind up doing, we slapped armor on the Humvee. And makeshift, right? Sometimes oh, it was makeshift Abs- armor. Absolutely. It was, you know, the sergeant in the motor pool welding on uh, armored plates. Right. Until eventually, there was a development of a whole line of various armored vehicles that we now use, uh, you know, you widely throughout the, the Army. Right. now without an MRAP. Exactly. Right. Uh, MRAPs, Greyhounds. We didn't have these when I came in the Army. Now it's a whole different fleet. Yep. I think we'll see the same thing now where, you know, it won't be an N95. There'll be a whole array of different types of masks, and it'll probably be common that we'll get off wearing a mask regardless of the call um, because of the heightened sense of, uh, of concern moving forward. We're doing that now. We have UV boxes that we had – you know, our utilities department, or not our utilities, our public works department build for us, you know, makeshift, you know, two specifications as identified by OSHA and, you know, down to the numbers, but right as a way to try and maintain our PPE and, and keep its longevity and keep its use. So absolutely, that's a great point. You're going to see some some huge technology changes, Yeah, not even just disinfectants, but it's it's just going to take time and as of right now it's challenging getting the supplies making sure people wear the supplies the ppe because it's a culture change people don't people don't want to wear a mask no you know people don't wear no. masks. but if you look at you know i spent some time in korea that's that's a natural way, it's a way of, of life. life that's yeah. a way of life and and i think going forward it'll become a way of life but it's going to take time it'll take a generation or two but then you'll see that you know it's it's going to change yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I think it's interesting because it, two evolutions, and you talk about the, the progression and the evolutions in in the industry, uh, and me being the the old dog in the room, uh, go back to pre um, HIV break outbreak mm-hmm. when you didn't ro- wear gloves. we didn't wear gloves, and yeah. you know the only time you put on gloves was when something was really nasty, and if you walked into the ER covered in blood, that was a badge of honor. Uh, nowadays you'd lose your mind over that. And it's really the same thing on the, on the suppression side where at one time, if your helmet wasn't covered in soot, you weren't a firefighter. You were like the only guy on the football team with the white Jersey, you know, and now they look at a a soot covered helmet and it's disgusting and and it's not tolerated. So I think this too will be part of the evolution. Yeah. Agreed. All right. So you guys were around. I mean, you mentioned the second war and obviously you guys were around for 9-11. So after 9-11, right, first responders, whether it be law enforcement or uh, fire rescue, EMS, right, hailed as heroes. The country kind of laid out the red carpet for us. Um, Do you see that same type of effect occurring during this pandemic? I I see the same thing, same thing for. That, you know, they're saying frontline EMS or frontline healthcare workers. Uh, you you kind of see it. Everybody's supportive verbally, but you know, it's not like, hey, let me give this guy a hug right now. You're not you're not seeing so much of that. Right. Let me shake this guy's hand because you know he's he's a. It could be an aide at a a nursing home, and right. that, that's that's a big important job. And yeah. but everybody's like, hey, I support you. I I'm I'm feeling for you, but they're not going to come up and shake your hand. 
Right. You know, so I, I, I think the support is there. You might get an air. Yeah. A fist, fist bump, bump or a, you know, a shoulder bump or something like that, but it's, it's going to stay, you know, yeah. it's going to be hard to, to really see that expression of emotion the same way we've seen it for military coming back from the, right. you know, in the airport and you see people stand up, you know, that's, that's always an emotional event. It's, it's, the support is there, but it's going to be displayed differently, I think. And I think that that's a good point, too, because I during 9-11, I remember, you know, after the event and after everything occurred and the, and the rescues took place and the salvage took place, there was a lot of celebration for first responders. And obviously it was tragic. We lost more in one single day than ever in the history of our country. But uh, a lot of people had to remind the country that, Hey, there are a lot of people who expired in those buildings who were janitors, office workers. Uh, there were a lot of people on the streets who were selling hot dogs who, you know, grabbed a napkin, put it over their face, and were running into debris to try and save people. So there are a lot of heroes, right? It just seems that the first responders kind of are always in the limelight, and we forget about the actual heroes. And you mentioned the aides at nursing homes, and, I, and I'm going to say probably the most overlooked class are the individuals who are keeping hospitals clean and keeping medical facilities clean. They're the highest rate of infection in the healthcare industry. Absolutely. Because they're exposed to it, right? Would you guys agree with that? Absolutely. And I I think one of the neat things is you talk about all of the other folks that are having an impact. I guess one of the positives out of this whole pandemic in the United States is that is the conversion we've seen of different industries to provide products, whether it be hand sanitizer or respirators. We haven't seen that kind of mobilization since the Second World War, which, Kevin, I was not part of. Yeah, um, the first time the defense Joe might have been. I, I, I missed that. But in all, in all seriousness, that, that kind of shows the the commitment that our, our country has and how we can come together and, and, and change on a dime, so to speak. And to, how to we're capable of doing the things that for so many years we shipped out to somewhere else. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and, and Kevin, I think you made a great point, too, about the value of underrated workers. I think one of the things that this issue has done for us is it's put recognition not just on the first responders, but as you said, the aides in the nursing homes, um, the, the housekeeping in the hospitals. But what about the um, the restaurant workers and the servers and the delivery people who've really been a lifeline for everybody throughout all this? I think those, the, the recognition, you know, before, I think it was with the, with the essential workers, meaning people that have to go to work to, to provide services for everybody else, mechanics, fast food workers. I think previously those, those jobs were considered, Hey, I don't want to do that. You know, I want to go to college. I want to, um, you know, go into business or accounting or something to that effect. And if I don't go to college, it's, it's going to be, the end of, of me. And I think this has kind of opened a lot of people's eyes to the fact that vocational jobs are, are more important or if just not, or as important as, you know, Hey, I got a college degree. Let me go out and find some work, but I I can't, I can't turn a wrench or I can't, uh, you know, fry up some food, but you know, cooks, cooks are, are fantastic. Um, mechanics, they're all important. You know, it's, it's, People are going to see that just because they're like, oh, well, you're just a cook. It's like, well, no, you're, you provide a vital link yeah. in the whole community economy and life cycle that even, even firefighting, you know, people think, oh, that, that's a blue collar job for sure. And they're going to see, hey, you know, I can, 
you know, I can do this job and it's, right. you know, provides money for my family and food on the table, but it also provides, you know, a sense of security too. So it's not just, it's, you're going to see, I think that shift, that paradigm shift of, you've already started to see it with, uh, you know, people pushing more vocational jobs. Yeah. And I think you're going to see it even more. Yep. In my civilian job in, in my new chapter, after retiring from the military, I work for a large infrastructure construction company. We do electric, gas, oil, and, and fiber optic communications. And I thought initially when, when the pandemic hit, uh, it was going to cause uh, a lot of the workforce to get scared off, not want to come to work. Um, and it, it was quite the opposite. Uh, we are, we've been declared by Homeland Security as a uh, mission-critical uh, company um, because we provide infrastructure uh, for our nation, and, and we are a nationwide company. Uh, our folks are as dedicated as any soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that I've worked with before. Um, in fact, uh, one of my toughest jobs is reminding them about the social distancing and the PPE and taking all the precautions yeah. because they want to charge on and continue to provide those services because they realize that that is, that is something that's necessary to keep our country running. And uh, so it's interesting that I thought leaving the military, I would never see folks as dedicated as I served with but I continue to serve in my civilian capacity with folks that are equally as dedicated uh, to providing for our, our local communities. Yeah. All right. So let's, um, let, let's kind of wrap this up. And I'm going to ask you the same question that we asked the, uh, the police officers who were in here earlier. And that is that if you had the opportunity to speak directly to the residents, which, which in, in fact you are doing, what's the one thing or what would you say to them that would help make, that they can do that would help make your job easier? I would say the main thing that, that people can do is they need to be able to help each other. And I, I see sometimes, too, when, when you see a lot of the social distancing, you say, hey, I don't, I'm not going to help that guy because, you know, I don't want to get near him. I don't want to expose myself. But, you know, if, if, if somebody needs help financially, emotionally, reach out to them, help them. Because there's more than just – you know, physically helping somebody that fell down in the grocery store or something like that. It's maybe your neighbor is lonely and they just need somebody to talk to. Call them on the phone, talk to them, help each other out in this, this time. Cause there's a lot of people that are having a lot of issues. There's, you know, a lot of people that are losing their jobs. Um, they're fighting with their spouses and they're, they're having a hard time just maybe emotionally, maybe financially, but not just, you know, physically. We think, how can we help? Hey, there's a house fire or there's a medical emergency you know, we can all help with that. But at the same time, there's the underlying things too. Um, being able to just say, Hey, are you okay? Just maybe right. hey, keep, keep an eye on each other. And that, yep. that's, that's what I would say is, is keep an eye on each other, check on each other and, and what, what can you do? And that, that'll help us, you know, a long way too. Cause I think a lot of that, a lot of our problems that come from physical trauma, fires, things like that stems from a community not being connected. Right. I would say aside from the obvious of, you know, when possible, stay home and, and maintain uh, appropriate social distancing. As you're looking for new activities to do and, and things with the family, um, as, as you kind of remain in isolation, make sure you take the appropriate precautions, especially when you're doing things you're not maybe accustomed to doing. Maybe you're riding bikes more often than, than, than you normally were before, or maybe you're uh, going to have a bonfire out in the backyard or a campfire, or you're going to start cooking at home and maybe you're not, you know, a... Uh, Cleaning out you, your gutters. You, you didn't suggest that 
bonfire I, as a I, firefighter I, I, here in Plantation, did you? No, no, I didn't. I meant uh, I meant campfire <laughs> or a fire pit. Warming fire. There you go. <laughs> Chimney. What, yeah, whatever appropriate mechanism. Fire pit. Uh, <laughs> and I bring those up because we've had a couple of those calls that we may not have had otherwise. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I would recommend to our, our constituents, our, our community here in Plantation and elsewhere in Broward, you know, be extra careful. I've noticed that there's obviously a lot less traffic on the road. But it seems that we're getting as many, if not more, traffic accidents than normal. Yeah. Because I think people are taking advantage of the opportunity. Mm-hmm. That, hey, there's no traffic on 595 or the Turnpike or Broward Boulevard. So, hey, I can go a little quicker than normal. And uh, so we seem to be having, just my personal perception, um, some, some some bad accidents. So, so be careful out there as you you explore new activities in this uh, this new norm that we now live in. Right. Yeah, we've we've consistently said on this podcast that, you know, our our message on top of the really great ones that you guys just put forward is uh, along the same lines. Just be patient with each other. Everybody's got anxiety. And like you mentioned, Kevin, there's people out of work. There's people who are home all day with their kids, which they are not accustomed to doing. Right. Kids are in school. So they're having to relearn some parenting skills. Patient levels are getting thin. Right. So we tell people, take a deep breath, have patience with your neighbor, you know, have some empathy uh, and I think, you know, that's that's a good message. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you both for giving us the time. I think it's kind of amazing we got through this without you having to run out for a call. Um, so that's terrific. I do want to thank the both of you for your service to the country as well as the community. And I just want to mention, I don't think we've mentioned it yet on the podcast, that our own medicine man, Chief LeBeau, also served in the Coast Guard. So I'm the only guy here that hasn't, and I'm I'm kind of the outlier in this, but all three of you, thank you for your service to the nation, to the community, and thank you for what you do every day. Thanks, Joel. Thank you for your support. Thank you very much. In this segment of Voices of First Responders, we're talking with our EMS folks. And today we have with us paramedic Paul Lucas and EMT Mark DeWalt. And we're going to talk about their perceptions of dealing with the COVID virus and how it's impacted the way they do their job. One of the unique things we have here is EMT DeWalt actually serves on the COVID response truck that we've put out to manage COVID patients. Uh, and, and so has Paul. Okay, I didn't know that. I'm sorry about that, but that's good. So now we got both of you from the COVID truck. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. Appreciate your time. And, you know, one of the things that we need to, to keep in mind is that the truck itself is in service and Mark is in service right now. He's actually on the truck today. So if there's a little disturbance in the room, it's because we probably got a call and Mark had to run, but we'll figure our way through it. Anyway, so let's start off with a simple question. And that is, how has the pandemic changed your work environment? You know, and a couple of things to think about when you answer that. How do you prepare for a shift? What do you think about when you're preparing? What do you tell your families? And what do they think about what you're doing and what's happening? So maybe... So, you know. uh, yeah, um, basically when I come to shift, I, I definitely changed a bunch of things. Uh, one of the things I change is I, I don't come in my work boots. My work boots stay at work. I have two pairs of boots. I have one boot set of boots to go on calls, and the other boots are after the call. And I have my station shoes, so I've uh, definitely adapted to not trying to not bring anything home from work and vice versa. 
and basically beginning the shift, just we make sure we clean the truck very good. And, you know, other than that, not much is different. Everything's the same as far as shift change. What we try to do is bring additional uniforms that we didn't necessarily bring in the past. Yeah. Uh, we always bought at least two sets, but now we maybe two, three, maybe four I sets. I bring of about nine. <laughs> yeah, like a, a whole wardrobe yeah but that but that's a good point because why do you guys specifically go through more uniforms than the other crews would so the suits we wear um well they they're hazmat suits so they don't really breathe uh and being florida it's hot sometimes so we we tend to sweat quite a bit so usually after a call i'll shower and change after each call because I sweat that much after each call. And also in, th- in theory, um, and we do a really well job of it, is we respond to the COVID calls. Right. The calls that do come out that either have the reference or confirm COVID calls, um, we're guaranteed to get those calls, which, again, leads to what Paul's saying. We're going to have to take a few showers throughout the day to stay fresh. Right. Uh, or we become the hazmat situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so just really quickly, for, for those that don't understand what you're talking about, and obviously there's no visuals here, so it's, it's hard to, for people to imagine it, what kind of a suit are you wearing, if you can describe it? Uh, I think if someone wants to think about, like, painter suits, where people wear, like, with a full suits with a hood over them and a mask, it's, it's kind of like that. It's a, it's a pretty thick plastic material. It just really prevents anything coming into us. Almost like a rain suit. Right. Combine a, a painter suit with a rain suit covering head to toe. So is this the Tyvek suit we yeah. hear about and we exactly. talk about, like the thick Tyvek material? Yeah. Now, are those reusable or so is it one we, time? We one time use every suit just to prevent uh, contamination from a call to call because we truly don't know who has it, who doesn't. And, and some of the facilities we're going to has positive patients within the facility. So, again, you got to take the precaution so after each call unfortunately we do switch into a new new suicide i mean it's not unfortunate it's just for it's our nature. safety yeah. yeah it's just the way it is right. right and to go off what you're saying uh chief chief gordon in reference to our families that's one of the things i reassure my family i'm sure paul does as well is that we have the right ppe we're fortunate enough that the ppe that is given to us is effective uh and so far our numbers are telling that they are uh, right. everybody's doing well everybody's healthy Right. Yeah. So what you're referring to, Mark, is the fact that to date, as far as we know, we have not had any positive COVID cases, not only in the city of Plantation amongst the employees, but also the fire department and the police department. Correct. We were actually talking about that at the station today where we have to wear these masks at work. We have to take these precautions. And then you step back and you realize it's effective. It's working. We don't have cases and we, we have a good yeah. Status at work. And we've said that before, right? Proper precautions, uh, due diligence, and th- sprinkle a little bit of luck in there. And, you know, we've been doing pretty good. And that's another thing we can reassure our families on is what we're doing is effective. As annoying as it might be or as fun as it might be, right? it's effective. Right. Well, and how do your families feel about that? Uh, so, you know, of course, they're, they're nervous, you know, given all the news and hype. But, again, what Mark said reassure them that we're probably the safest within the whole department. And I think that's why we're running all these calls is because we are the most protected. Um, so there's a very low chance of us getting sick. Um, and just reassuring them that we're taking the, the steps to make sure we're, we're not contaminating ourselves. Um, 
but I still keep pretty social distance with my father. He lives in Melbourne, and unfortunately, I'm not able to visit him right now. But uh, you know, they're understanding in that aspect. Right. So it, it it breeds a lot of credibility to the cover up and social distancing argument that we've heard so much of. Correct. Yeah. So how has this virus, this pandemic, how has it affected the way you interact with the patients that you see? Well, what has changed since before? What what I think is when we're taught in school, right? Treat every patient like they have something contagious. As time goes on, we may be lax a little bit. This pandemic has brought that back to life. Right. It's reassured us that, listen, you were taught the proper procedures. Go back to your training. Utilize them. Treat patients with respect, but on both ends of the spectrum, you're protecting them from you and vice versa. And vice versa, right. How about you, Paul? So with, with these suits, uh, and I'm not sure if people have seen what we look like, but it's, it can be pretty intimidating, pretty scary, especially for the patients especially walking in their house looking like hazmat uh, astronauts, essentially. Right. Um, <laughs> it, it can be really scary, and I see that a lot where we assess them and their heart rate's through the roof because they're just scared. Right. So it takes a lot more, like, trying to talk to them and calm them down, coach them, and explain why we're here and right. why we're being protected. And then like, sometimes do something goofy. So it kind of breaks yeah. break the ice. Break the ice yeah. okay. And it's not just the suits, right? I mean, what else is different about w- the equipment that you're utilizing on the truck that changes the entire look of you as an EMS provider? Oh, the mask. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Um, the, yeah, the respirator. It, it, yeah. If you think of the movie Back to the Future, <laughs> you remember when he gets out of the car, he's got a big face mask on. He scares everybody. That's who he appear to be right show up on these scenes especially if it's an unconscious patient in the middle of the night maybe the family shows up they look at the room um, and then we just have to reassure them that well and i think that's an important point for our listeners is that the mask that the individuals who are on the special covid response truck are wearing is an air respirator mask it's not like an n95 or an n100 mask it's actually a full mask with canisters and most people aren't accustomed to seeing that Unless they're, you know, police officers are using them with riots or gas. So I think it does add some intimidation factor, right? Difficult to see your faces, military-grade equipment, right? Wouldn't you agree, Joel? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, you know, it kind of leads into the next thing we wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, what about the emotions? And here we are, you know, as we've always said for so long, we get to meet people on the worst day of their lives. And so here we have somebody who's having a bad day for whatever reason, that they may know that they are impacted with this this horrible virus, or they don't know, but they dial nine one one. It's scary, and in walk these two aliens. Right. You know what? How, what kind of emotions do they show? How do you deal with that? I think you mentioned it a little bit, Mark, about how you deal with it, and how are your emotions balanced through all of this? The the emotional part of it is the fact that we're, we're there to provide help. We have a better understanding of what we're doing um, in, in regards to our PPE and our look. Um, but then when you think about after the call, breaking down, trying to get the Tevix suit off, trying to get the mask off, trying to clean everything so we don't contaminate ourselves and then bring that contamination back to the station level and then back home. Um, to me, I think that's where my emotional level sits in is to reassure that we remain clean just because we have the suit on. If we don't properly 
doff our suit or, or don it, take it off the right way, we can spread germs that way as well. Yeah. So emotionally, we, we we think about other people first at this point that maybe we weren't before subconsciously. And right. adding on to that, the good thing about the the mask we wear is you can see our face, our I mean our eyes pretty well. Uh, so being able to kind of give ex- emotional expression with our eyes and kind of being calm, right? Um, and, and fortunately, we have some very professional providers on this trucks that, in the most critical situation, we're able to relate the calmness to the patient. Right. And once we establish that bridge, we're able to kind of calm emotions down, even in the most critical situation. Right. Now, one of the setbacks I think is is off duty. Right. We all had. Uh, I played for for example. I play softball. Uh, some people may be musicians. Some people may do other things. So we don't have a vent port like we used to. In some cases, we're at home. We're trying to be, uh, some people call it quarantined or self-distancing. Um, so we, we go home, and, and that aspect has changed. Right. We don't have a vent port like we used to. In some cases. You don't have the ability to discharge, really. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. Yeah. I mean, when you try to explain to uh, individuals who aren't involved in EMS or in firefighting or in law enforcement, right, they're not involved in public safety, it's hard to explain a few factors, right? One, it's hard to explain our sense of humor because we have, we can have a slightly macabre sense of humor as, as a coping mechanism, right? <laughs> that's that's a nice way to say it, yeah. <laughs> and additionally, you know, I think same in the military is our, our motto kind of is work hard and, and play hard, right? Yeah. Have uh, those things, Mark, you mentioned sports. Paul, I know you're a photographer and in photography and, you know, although you can probably go out in your yard and do some of that, it's hampered right. with yeah, everything. Yeah. And, um, you know, so we all have our things that are a little bit hampered. So I, I think that's a really good point. Um, let me ask you, as a country, as a state, as an EMS system within the state, were we prepared for this pandemic? I'd say absolutely. Uh, compared to other departments that see what we wear, I think they all agree that, wow, Plantation really has has it together as far as this truck, the suits we wear, the respirator, the protocols that were put in place. I think I think we are the best prepared in yeah. the county <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I, I would second that for sure. I, I, I don't know about the country. Um, there's very little that I know in regards to factual base. But what makes me feel good is the agency I work for, we're – we hit this thing head on, and we had some bumps in the beginning, but they were ironed out real quick, and I, I feel comfortable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the huge thing, and you said it, and we're, we'll probably say it a couple times, the huge thing is is that, um, you know, the fire chief pulled the trigger on the COVID truck and kind of made that happen quickly, and I think that did make a big difference. Um, looking at our numbers, they're not huge compared to some of the other municipalities, but it definitely provided us with uh, a safety mechanism, I think. And the the other bigger thing is it allowed us to preserve some of our PPE as well. So, uh, yeah, I think that that was a good call. Yeah. What's, what's nice with the COVID truck is it's closed cab, right? So we don't – when we drive, obviously, we have to transport to the hospital. But the patient is separate there from a barrier. There's a barrier between right. the driver's section and the patient compartment so that helps a lot right and and, and that may be important for people who don't really understand that i've never been in that environment in in most common ambulances there's a like a walkway or a doorway 
between the, the driver's compartment and where the patient sits. And this particular truck, as you said, there's a solid wall. Right. right. And it also helps, you know, with whoever's driving can efficiently talk on the radio and call in the hospital and give a report and all that stuff. So it's a big teamwork environment. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. All right. So, you know, if, if we can, I'm going to ask you to kind of project forward a little bit and having been through this, how do you perceive this experience is going to change the way we do things in the future and how we provide EMS in the future? Uh, I'm sure it's, it's going to change. Um, and already, you know, um, I'm pretty sure we're going to be wearing masks for quite a bit, long time. Maybe not the full respirators, but definitely we're going to be wearing an N95 mask on every single call, regardless of the situation. Um, and then PPE. I mean, already we were practicing good PPE practice with eyeglasses, gloves, and, uh, you know, that regard. But I think now we're going to, I'll be wearing gowns to particular calls, and yeah. I think that's not going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, and I foresee, I mean, from my perspective, I foresee call screening, that that's going to continue for a long time, um, maybe even forever, because uh, who knows, from an infectious disease perspective, uh, it's a very good implementation of, you know, safety first uh, exercise, and um but you're right. I think with the N95s and the common patient, uh, several authorities within the state of Florida who are involved with DMS have outwardly stated that their recommendation would be for all EMS providers to be in N95 masks for all patients or a level of mask that they are able to obtain and, and maintain stock levels of. So, And what I see in the future also is people – like I mentioned earlier, thinking about other people, putting their condition prior to our or in front of our condition, um, like going to your grandparents' house, for example. We would go there, love our grandparents, hug our grandparents, and not if you're sick, you want to be around the people that love you. But now with this moving to the future, you may have to take a sick day, even though you could power through your shift and work through your shift. But you may have to take a sick day so you right. don't contaminate other people. Yeah, absolutely. I think you have to be more cognizant of that and, and that kind of changes the perspective and training and, and mark you mentioned it early on about um how you know when you went through school uh you were always taught that everybody has something right. um you know and we've been taught for years and years about bsi body substance isolation which was mostly directed at protecting ourselves uh you know and, and ezra being an educator and i being a, a you know an educator um you know, we've always trained in that. I being coming up through my training before the days of the HIV outbreak and before the days of gloves and BSI, a little bit of a different perspective. But what do you think is going to be coming down as far as training new paramedics, new EMTs, and ongoing training for current EMS providers? Uh, I think a lot of the, the tools we use, like um, we use different airway devices that we want to stay away from right now because they aerosolize the, uh, the room. And I think that's a lot of the protocols are going to change based off that, you know, different devices we use that can actually um, inhibit the spread of more germs and yeah. viruses and stuff like that. I feel like that's going to be some big changes coming up. And, and I think in a, in a training level, actually wearing your equipment in class, you know, in other words, so we don't run out of our, yeah. our gloves, you know, okay, well, you have your gloves on. 
Well, no, let's go ahead. Let's start putting them on. Right. Let's wear them. Get comfortable. Get used to them. How to function in the gear. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Get comfortable. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Because that's been touching. I mean, in EMS education, that's been touch and go. There's, um, I, when I went through school, which was a while ago, uh, we didn't have gloves right. to wear in the classroom setting or the lab setting. Now, if we went to do our hospital time or our ride times, we did. Always. Correct. But in harm's way, it's right. a great point because you should train like you're going to behave right correct that's how you ingrain it and so you develop your habits yeah and wearing masks i'm sure just about everybody whether they're in ems or first response or even most of our residents now understand what wearing a mask is like long term right how that feels and uh it's definitely not good for the mustache (laughs) (laughs) so um how how can our listeners help you guys to do a, a better job at what you're doing out there? Well, that, that that's a tough one because again, we respond in some of their darkest times. Um, I would say to, to to try to use, I would say common sense, but to understand that you called us, right? So we want you to cooperate with us because we're here for you. We're right. here for the best of your, for your best interest. So, um, if we're taking a little bit too long to get there because we have to put the Tevic suit on, right. or we have to don our mask. Uh, we, our communication may be inhibited a little bit wearing a mask. So just to be right. a little bit more patient, I would say, um, but also have accurate information for us. Right. And, and that's, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Cause that's been an ongoing theme for us, which is, you know, just let us know, right. Uh, be forthcoming and upfront with us. Uh, not so much for you guys, because by the time you guys are dispatched in that specialty COVID unit, you're already fully prepared. Right. But for our other units, um, there may be a change in a level of protection that they're going to utilize based on the information that dispatch is receiving. So if the callers aren't forthcoming in the beginning, mm-hmm. then that, that could present you know some challenges for us. Yeah, because yeah. we honestly don't care. Yeah. Like we'd rather know if you have COVID, if you have tuberculosis, sure. it doesn't matter yeah. what you, we, we're prepared, but just let us know so we can do it efficiently. Right. Yeah. And and maybe that's a good point to bring out because we did recently change one of our procedures when a, when an, in an unknown reference or someone who's not known to have COVID and the, and the crew shows up and suddenly we figure it out that there's going to be a little disruption in service. Maybe want to explain that to the listeners, what's going to happen. Well, in a situation like that, the members that don't have their uh, maybe gowns on, correct, or maybe their trauma sleeves, which sleeves that go over your forearm to just help protect uh, mm-hmm. on contact, they may have to go back to the unit, to, to the rescue, to grab the equipment, to put the additional needed equipment for that call. Right. So that, that could take a, a few minutes. Add that or you're going to withdraw the crew, the, the regular crew, and send the COVID unit right. in. Right. Yeah. Another thing I'd say also to the listeners is uh, don't be afraid to call, too. Uh, I know on local news lately they they were saying a lot of people weren't calling. And we've been to a couple calls where they waited, um, and they waited a little bit too long, and they got really sick. So if you feel like you need help, you call for help. Don't. Yeah. Don't, don't hesitate. Don't Call hesitate. right away. Yeah. We're prepared and we can keep you protected. And, and, you know, I think that we, and when I say we, I don't mean our municipality specifically, but I mean we in the medical community, I, I feel like we, we have a little bit of stake in that because 
you know, in the very beginning, we told people uh, if you're just exhibiting flu-like symptoms and you're sick and you can maintain, you can control that fever, uh, then, you know, stay at home. Uh, don't swamp the hospitals. But that swamping of the hospitals never really came to all hospitals. And so I feel like our messaging was a little bit skewed. Now, obviously, it was based on the best information we had at the time. But regardless, I think now we have to do, like you mentioned, Paul, a very good job at telling the public, listen, if you're sick, call 911. Let's get you to the hospital. That's where you need to be. Uh, Instead of people being afraid to call 911, and or afraid to go to the hospital, right? Would you agree, Mark? I would agree. And I think one of the things that we saw that really picked up through this is the video conference with the doctors. So that was another avenue to where patients don't have to be exposed. Because, again, when we right. take you to the ER, we could be exposing you to, uh, to, to problems. Um, so I think with the video conferencing with the patients the one-on-one. Telemedicine is, stuff. Telemedicine is, yeah. is very uh, – we're, we're able to go to patients' houses and – do a good, really good assessment and really decide if they're really don't need to go to a hospital versus, yeah, right. definitely need to go to a hospital. And then we can educate them there. And Right. So. Right. All right. So one of the things that we've done with, with the police officers that we've spoken to and, and our firefighters, and we can do it with you guys too, is as we close out, give you the opportunity to say something, what would you like to say to our residents, what's the one message that you want to drive home to our residents that you serve on a daily basis? Uh, we're in this together, and uh, unfortunately, it's not going away instantly. It's not going away anytime soon. I know the Florida is starting to open up now again, but again, it's not going away. Uh, so just keep practicing social distancing the best you can and you know, stay healthy. If you're sick, you stay home. Mm-hmm. I would like to express comply. It's probably the... The biggest message I want to send to our residents is just comply. As frustrating as it might be, uh, like Paul said, we're in this together. If we comply, if we listen to the guidelines, if we listen to what our mayor has to say, how, the, the sooner we comply, the sooner we can open up. Comply with what specifically? I mean, uh, like, I know what you're saying, but right, okay. right. our listeners might not. might not. So social distancing. Okay. okay. So we want to slowly open the parks, right? Like right. I mentioned before, I play softball. I've been Beaning to play softball. Parks are closed. <laughs> they open the park. We flood the park with softball players. Uh-huh. Right. We're not complying. We're not listening to the social distance. And that's why we did. We had opened the parks at one point, and unfortunately they had to shut them down the other day because of that. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I would say comply because we are in this together, and, and it's frustrating, but comply. It's Yeah, and it's it's a team effort. I mean, I think my message and Joel's message, which is pretty con- consistent, is have a little bit of patience with your neighbor, right? Um, Try to educate, try and mentor. Don't talk down to them or yell at them or become uh, argumentative, right? Um, If someone is jogging past you and they're five feet, 35 inches or five (laughs) feet, 5.3 feet away from you and they're not wearing a mask and they're, you know, breezing right by you, have patience with that. That's uh, just going to happen, right? So I know with our neighbors, they they check on us. We check on them from a distance. Right. You know, we'll talk across the yard. Hey, is everything good? And they know my wife and I are both first responders. And 
they're a little concerned, and then they're a little concerned for themselves. Right, right. Because we're their neighbors. Right. Right. No, right. It's moved in next door, hasn't they it? they put up yeah. a barrier? No <laughs> barrier, right? No barrier, but they said if we get quarantined, a yellow sign in the front yard. <laughs> right. Giant UV light over your house. All right, so gentlemen, Paul, Mark, thank you very, very much uh, for spending the time with us. Uh, Mark, I'm glad we made it through without a call. Uh, kind of uh, kind of happy about that. So, um, again, gentlemen, appreciate your time. Thank you very much, and, and hopefully the residents can hear the message. Thank Thanks, you, Chief, for having us. Thank you. Stay safe. You've been listening to the City of Plantation podcast. Here in Plantation, we're working hard to bring you the latest, most accurate information available about the coronavirus pandemic. Remember, if you have specific questions, you can email them to askcityhall at plantation.org. Don't forget to visit the COVID-19 page on our website and register for Everbridge for up-to-the-minute changes regarding the outbreak. We want to thank you for tuning in and taking the time to listen to the experts about how to keep yourselves, your family, and your business safe and healthy during the crisis. And don't forget to wash your hands, cover your cough, and maintain a safe distance.